This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue our journey through Romans, addressing the question of where we find righteousness. Yep. So in this opening of Romans, we looked at in the last episode, Paul is addressing this blended family that's having a problem trying to figure out how to work together, how to how to be a family, this blended family, the group that kind of led the way, that was kind of the foundation uh, the basis, they got kicked out. They had to leave. Years later, they come back home. And now there's this uh, struggle. Who's who? What's the pecking order? And who's in charge? And basically, we, we said Paul starts off the letter by saying, uh, and there is no nobody gets to look down on anybody else. No matter who you are, we all have the same problem. And that problem is this. We have... Uh, uh, we all have a measuring stick, whether it's a self-projected measuring stick, whether it's kind of an, an arbitrary moralistic measuring stick, whether it's a God's Torah measuring stick. And the problem is, is no matter what measuring stick we lose, we, we, we use, we, we, we never match up. We always fall short. And so we all have this conscience. We all have a conscience that testifies against us. We all have, to use session one language, Brent, we all have fear and insecurity. And what God's going to invite us to do is God's going to invite us to trust. He's going to invite us to trust the story. Another word for trust, Brent, in the Hebrew? Believe. Or? To have faith. Faith, right? He's going to call us. And so we make a big deal uh, as as New Testament Christians because of the Reformation. We make a big deal about faith. And another word for faith in the Jewish mind is trust. And we've been talking about trust, Brent, since episode one. And this idea of trusting the story. And, uh, and that was a, that's why I, I made a big deal at some point in session one, Brent, about trusting the story is not a self-help. It's not a, it's not like a trendy self-help plug. It's not, it's not trust the story that God's telling in your life. Like, sure, but that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is trust, trust the story of Genesis one, trust the foundational truth that God loves his creation. He values it. He accepts it. He thinks it's good. That idea of trusting the story, Genesis 1, is going to be the bedrock of what Paul is doing here in Romans. And I think we talked about this uh, in those early episodes, but the reason we numbered our first two episodes, negative 1 and 0, is because we had a little bit of context to establish before we talked about it. But that idea of trusting the story, that is the foundational piece. Like, that is number one. That is episode one. Absolutely. Literally and metaphorically. So we have this conscience problem because we all know that we fall short. We all have this fear. We all have this insecurity. No matter what measuring stick we use, we all know that we are less than what we want to be. And so we have a conscience. We have a salvation. We have a redemption that needs to come from somewhere other than our ability to hold true to a system of rules. No matter where that system comes from, even if it's God's system, no no matter whether that system comes from our own sense of morality, whether it comes from our own measure of reality, whether it comes from God himself and Torah itself, we would still fall short, no matter what measuring stick we use, and have a conscience testifying against us. But Paul has good news. What's the word, Brent? A euangelion. Euangelion. He's got a gospel. He's got good news for us and continues from this point that we left off last time. He's going to continue moving towards the ending of the third chapter of Romans with these words. Pick up right where we left off, Brent. A quick question on the euangelion. Yeah. Rome is like the center of the kingdom. So you better believe it. What, like, what is their experience of euangelion? Because it's not like anybody's ever marching into Rome and 
and establishing a new kingdom. Rome is where the kingdom is. Rome, to word it another way, Brent, I love your question. To word it another way, Rome is where the euangelion goes out from. Rome is the, uh, the, 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 the origin. It's the originating start point of the gospel. So when Paul says in our very first episode of Romans, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the euangelion. For it is the power of God. He is he is speaking to Rome. That's like you you're the place where the gospel comes from, the Roman gospel. We can't be ashamed of this other gospel. It's a great point. I never really even thought about addressing that, but wonderful point. Yeah, I had not thought of that before either. Just like the Yeah. Like what is their perspective like? And I guess yeah, I don't know. I just don't know how many of them would be involved in it to where to where Euangelion would be a major factor in their life. But mm-hmm. I suppose it's... Uh... Maybe the same way that people from Washington, D.C. would feel about when people talk about Congress or the Capitol or what, I don't know. Yeah. They'd be like, yeah, that's, that's, I'm from there. Okay. I don't know. Better or for worse? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe a bad example. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Uh, jump me back in. Uh, we're in Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Okay, read that again, Brent. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So apart from a measuring stick, apart from this idea that it's by the measuring rod or by my obedience or by my performance, apart from that idea, we have found a righteousness from where? Righteousness of God. Righteousness of God or righteousness from God. Okay, go ahead. To which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. One of those famous verses, Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notably, in the middle of a sentence and always quoted alone. (laughs) Exactly. Boy, do we yank that out of context. We love to just use that to be like, all are sinners. And yet it comes in the middle, like we cut the sentence off. We cut it off where there's a comma. (laughs) Uh, Because the the verse ends with what, Brent? Not only is everybody sinners, but everybody... All are justified freely by his grace. How many are justified freely by his grace? All. All of them. That are justified freely by grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So all are sinners, but all are justified. That's Paul's point. We use it to be like all are sinners and just like kind of like take the first half of the sentence and then start our theological treatise. And Paul's like, no, we all are are sinners, but we all also have the same justification. So no group is better than the other. As we've seen before, an understanding of the first century conversation surrounding justification is essential to Paul's argument. We are justified. What, just, what does justified mean, Brent? To be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. Or what was the other word I liked? Can you remember? Thomas Lancaster liked it as well. It was the word exonerated. Oh, yes. Right? Exonerated. Which doesn't mean that you are innocent. just means you've been exonerated, right? Another good word for justification in my mind. So if, we're, if we are justified by performing the mixat ma'aseh then there is a difference between, uh, between the justification of the Jew and the justification of the Gentile. However, Paul says, we now understand because of Jesus that there is a righteousness of God that has been made known. There's a, there's a, there's a new kind of righteousness. It comes, comes from God. And it's apart from the law. It has, it, this righteousness has nothing to do with the measuring stick, no matter which one you choose, 
whether it's the capital L law, the Torah, or not. It's apart from that. And if this is true, then this justification is available and always has been available to both Jew and Gentile alike. We all have the same human condition, and we all have access to the same righteousness from God. This righteousness doesn't come from the law. It doesn't come from our works. It doesn't come from our obedience. This righteousness comes from believing in the promises of God. This righteousness comes from trusting the story, and it comes from faith. Go ahead and give me the next little bit, Brent. He did this, as in uh, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God has been doing this in his story in order to demonstrate and put on display what his righteousness looks like. God did it in order to be the one who is pursuing justice and the one who brings justice about. Remember justice, what was the word, Hebrew word for justice, Brent? Well, we've got mishpat. Mishpat is what I'm going for, yep. yep. He, he did this because he wants to be about mishpat. He did it to be the judge who cares about everything being in its proper place. And he did this to be the judge that is also bringing that restoration about by pronouncing exoneration to those who trust in his love. We might remember from um, uh, what, probably session two, we talked about a judge and we said a judge, a shafat in the Hebrew, is not just somebody that pronounces the judgment, but also what, Brent, can you remember? Uh, sees to the carrying out of judgment. Exactly. Also carries out that judgment. So that's what this Romans passage refers to. While we'd like it to refer to a bunch of legal, penal-based theology, it actually is Paul saying, God is going to be the one who not only pronounces judgment, but also carries this. He's not only pursuing justice, stating justice, defining justice. He's also the one carrying this justice out. He'll be the one that puts everything back in its proper place. It's the, he'll be the one that brings the restoration by pronouncing, and he's going to do it by being the judge and the, ju- and, and the judger. He's going to be the shafat. He's going to be the one that pronounces exoneration. To those who trust the story. Go ahead, Brent. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So just in case we want to fall into the trap of typical Christian reasoning, saying that the law is then done away with and no longer a relevant part of the larger conversation, Paul makes it quite clear, just as he did in Galatians, that the law is far from nullified or done away with. Instead, the Jews are called to uphold the law. In fact, they are called to correct false understandings of the law since it's the law itself that will bear testimony to the fact that justification has always come by faith. When Paul wrote Galatians, he said he realized that truth from where, Brent? Where did he understand that from? Uh, From the law itself. From the law itself, right? Like from the law. He said, through the law, I realized I wasn't saved by the law. Or excuse me, I wasn't justified by the law, Paul said in Galatians. So that's why the law is so important, because it's the law itself that teaches us this truth. And because this is the case, boasting is done away with. Since we all wrestle with the same human condition, whether we're a part of group one or group two or group three, since we're all justified by the same trust, by the same faith, since we're all subject to the same God, 
and experience the same love, there's no reason or ability to boast. We're all on a level playing field. We're all children of, of God's household. Group one, two, and three are all parts of the same story. But just as he did in Galatians, Paul now needs to make his case through the law itself that this gospel isn't something new at all, because it kind of sounds like Paul's doing something new. But Paul has to show that that's been around since the days of Abraham. And so that's exactly where Paul goes next. So he does go to that exact same spot. He goes to Abraham. He goes to this father of faith. He goes to where the story began, all the way back there in Genesis 11 and 12, where we talked about the introduction right after the preface. And he talks about Abraham, just like he did in Galatians. Brent, go ahead and pick up where we left off. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. All right, so Paul here goes to Abraham as, an, as his example. So for all of us that love to use Romans as like the Jesus treatise of salvation through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, we find all that in Romans, which you're actually not going to find anything about the atoning work of Jesus on the cross in, in Romans. It's going to be a complete discussion about justification. It's going to be a complete discussion about something totally other than atonement. Atonement's going to show up somewhere else. But in case we wanted to do that, Paul says Abraham is our example here. Whatever truth Paul is talking about, he's going to go back to Abraham to say, look, Abraham knew this. Abraham. So this isn't a New Testament, a brand new New Testament idea. This is something that Paul says has been going on through the entire story. Paul says Abraham knew this inherent truth to be true in his own walk of righteousness. Paul states that if Abraham earned his justification from his works, he would be able to boast. It is here where Paul begins using a metaphor based on labor and wage, and that is important. Did you catch that as you read that, Brent? Yeah. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift. So we're all the way in chapter what, Brent? Chapter four. Towards the beginning? Yeah. Okay. So we're in the beginning of chapter four, and Paul starts having a conversation about wages. Okay. When a person works, they get a paycheck. If Abraham was justified because of his work, then he earned the justification and would be able to boast in his successful campaign to work for justification. Paul then says, if a person simply trusts in the promises of God, that trust or faith is credited to them as righteousness. The term credited can also be rendered as reckoned. I like that word, old word, reckoned. And refers to a settling of books. That same idea of exoneration, just a declaration. It's not a paycheck. It's not a wage. Because a wage is something that I get when I work for it. Now, wage is going to become really important in a very famous verse all the way in chapter 6, Brent. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Now, we need to realize that is not a statement that exists in a vacuum. That statement closes up a conversation that started all the way back here in chapter 4. That's why I'm wanting to point that out so clearly here. Paul is working off of the same verse in Genesis 15 that he used with the Galatians. Genesis told us that Abraham had faith and it was reckoned to his account as righteousness. He believed, he trusted, 
and he was accepted by God and was a member of God's family by promise. That faith, that trust in the promise of God was just as effectual as if he had walked righteously. Did Abraham walk perfectly, Brent? No. No, he did not. So was he righteous because of his, was that the paycheck he got? Was his righteousness something that he got because he worked for it? Certainly not. Certainly not. But Abraham, we are told in Genesis 15, trusted God, believed in God, had faith in God, and God looked at his books and said, okay, you don't owe me anything. You're righteous. That's how this works. Go ahead and keep reading. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Okay, so Paul starts here and he starts saying, okay, is this just for us Jews? This special gift of righteousness, this special justification? Is it just for us Jewish circumcised folks? And Paul says, well, take a look at Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, was Abraham circumcised? Go ahead. Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So that circumcision comes as a result of his trust. Because he trusted the story, because he trusted, God said, ah, I want to do something special with you. And he gave him a new covenant relationship. I don't want to say because of, but this relationship he saw, this trust in Abraham, that's where the circumcision came out of. The the, the justification didn't come because of the circumcision. It was the other way around. Go ahead. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul keeps pushing his point to make it relevant to those Gentiles who find themselves in the church of Rome. This belief, this faith, this trust cannot be reserved only for the circumcised. For Abraham experienced all of this before he was circumcised. This justification and the crediting of righteousness has to be available independently of circumcision. In this way, Abraham becomes the father of faith for the uncircumcised. Paul's point is that this faith, this trust, is accessible and available to all, circumcised and uncircumcised. It's the same God. It's the same process. It's the same promise. It's the same faith. They receive the same justification. So in the same way that we all fell short of our measuring stick and we had the same problem, we all have the same answer. We all have the same justification, which is that verse, Brent, for all have sinned, that's part one, but all are justified, part two. Freely justified. Freely justified. If Paul started his letter by saying that all of humanity struggled with the same problem, he goes on to say that all of humanity enjoys the same redemption. Paul reiterates his point in the next few verses. Go ahead. And I don't think Paul explicitly says it in Romans like he does in Galatians, but Abraham has the same gospel. Absolutely. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. So Abraham partnered with God before he was circumcised, before there was a law, before there was a single command to follow. This means that people cannot rely on the fact that they are obedient to God's law for their partnership and acceptance. 
As Paul stated in the first three chapters, nobody lives up to the standard, whether it's God's standard or their own, whether it's pagans or new believers or old believers or Jews or converts. We all know that we fall short and we live under a cloud of wrath. When it comes to our own insecurity, when it comes to our own fear, when it comes to our own falling short, not that we live under a cloud of this Augustinian God's wrath, but just a self-imposed, disrupted conscience is what Paul said. Paul suggests we should trust the story instead. Keep reading, Brent. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. One of my favorite lines from Romans 4, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. We are invited to trust the story of a God who gives life where death reigns and calls things out of what isn't there. As we learned in Galatians, we are not righteous. But if we trust in the love and grace of God, he says we are righteous. Even when we are not, he calls into being things that were not. Abraham understood this, Brent Billings, even though it goes against that which we believe to be most true about ourselves, even though it seems incredibly counterintuitive, Abraham believed that when God said it, it must be true. Give me the next verses. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So we too are invited into the same promise and the same hope. We are invited to believe God feels the same way about all of us as he believed in Abraham. If we believe in this same truth and this same story, we find we have incredible peace and joy of a cleansed conscience. The peace and joy of a cleansed conscience that is freed from the dark cloud of a curse that we carry around. Self-imposed curse, if that makes more sense to us, but a curse nonetheless. Go ahead and keep reading. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. It is because of God's love and acceptance, unmerited, unearned, undeserved, but true of God nonetheless, we can celebrate in our redemption. Not only this, but the same truth continues to overflow into all other areas as well. We have a new perspective in the midst of suffering. We are loved and valued. My suffering doesn't raise the same set of doubts that it used to about God's anger and doubts about my acceptance before him. In fact, our sufferings have a tendency to become teaching tools. 
They teach us about perseverance. Our perseverance is used by God to shape character in our lives, and our character is then used by God to bring us hope. Ultimately, our, the hope is that God really is who he says that he is and who he always says that he was, and that we really are who God says we are, loved, valued, accepted, redeemed. And this hope does not disappoint, because somewhere in our bones, at our deepest level, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we know God's love to be true. I'm going to recommend a book here, Brent, uh, Prototype by Jonathan Martin. We've recommended it before. I'm going to recommend it again. Here's a quote from that book. Prototype by Jonathan Martin. I believe, Jonathan says, there was a time in your life, sometime before you succumbed to the constant busyness, the noise, the distraction of our world, when you knew something of the loving presence of God. There was a time, perhaps associated with a place, when you knew or at least suspected that you were infinitely loved. In other words, I believe you have heard from God and that you probably know a lot more about hearing from God than you might realize. So important to me, Brent, that we read Romans looking the right direction. As Christians and as evangelicals, we have been taught to read Romans looking backwards. We, we look through the lens of the Reformation. We look through the, through the lens of Calvin or of Luther or from Augustine or whatever person. We, we look backwards through a, a doctrinal Christian lens and we project it onto Romans and then we misread it. My goal through Bema is to teach us how to look forwards through the whole Bible. Always be looking forwards so that we can read the Bible in its appropriate context, not through the lens of Christian theology created a thousand years too late, but through the lens of a story that we've already encountered. When you read Romans through the lens of session one, through the lens of session two, then through the lens of session three and the premacy of Christ, when you read it through that lens and meet Romans in its proper point in history, we're able to hear the right theology that comes out of Romans rather than the wrong theology that we created later in the story. And I hope that that makes sense to our listeners at this point in their study in session four. Um, but we'll keep working on it. We got a lot to deconstruct here in Romans. So we're just going to keep doing the same thing that we've always done at every intersection of the story. All right. Sounds great. Uh, I definitely say pick up prototype. I've read that and it is uh, quite good. Great book. Great book. Uh, well, let's see. We're still in the middle of Romans, so hold your questions on Romans. But feel free to go to BamaDiscipleship.com, get in touch with us there. Uh, maybe hop on the Facebook group. Uh, check out some some discussion there. Uh, Marty's always sharing stuff on the Facebook group, so that's a great, great place to get in touch. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.